welcome to a special London Light interview with Nobel Laureate Professor Donna Strickland. Professor Strickland works in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo in Canada and was one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2018 for developing chirp pulse amplification with Gerard Moreau, her PhD supervisor at the time. They published this Nobel winning research in 1985 when Strickland was a PhD student at the University of Rochester. Professor Strickland was in London to deliver the Massey Lecture at UCL and very kindly stopped by the Department of Physics at King's College London to talk to members of the SPIE student chapter. In this interview, Professor Strickland discusses what she likes to do in her spare time, why outreach and science communication is so important, and gives us an insight into the life of a Nobel laureate. Thanks to Vittorio, Dries and Anne, members of the SPI student chapter, and of course, Professor Strickland. We guess that you're staying in London has been a couple of hectic days, and like I guess that on average when you go around, you always have a million things to do, right? Like talks to give or going around in these labs and stuff like that. Yes. So, what would be your favorite ways to let off some steam? Like, what would you what would you do if you could choose to just relax for a while? Like, what's your favorite thing to do? Um, I, I actually just like walking. So, if I do have. And I did, uh, when I arrived here, I had an hour or so, and so I did walk around because I was staying by St. Pancras Station, and uh, there's a beautiful walk down along by the water. Now, I have to say, I was going to go down to the water because there's a path along there, because the last time I stayed, we were near to Paddington Station, and I walked mm -hmm. along the water this way, so I thought I could probably walk to the water back that way. And then as I started to go downstairs, I heard some man yelling his head off, and I went, okay, don't. <laughs> I'll stay up. Um, and, then, and then it didn't seem to keep going. But anyway, that's, that's what I like to do. I mean, obviously, other times I've stayed closer to Buckingham Palace, and you walk around the gardens there, and, and I'll find a park. I just like to walk. Yes, and it's usually probably more in a park than in a city setting. So which is why if I see the water a long, long way of water too. Yeah, I, I can relate to being close to the water. Right, and if, obviously, if there's any type of beach nearby, I'll walk by the beach. Definitely. And has it always been this kind of hobby that you've had, or like, is it something that you... It's not you really a hobby, it's the only no, thing I do. Yeah. And yeah, my husband keeps saying I need a hobby. Um, <laughs> now, of course, poor, the poor man, like I said, he has Parkinson's, so, you know, he's ski and play tennis okay. and stuff, you know, so that's how to go. Um, not that we were good at tennis, but you know, we like to try. I don't know, we're going to try again this summer, and I just have to be better at learning how to hit two hymns because he can't run. So it'll be good practice for me to see if I can actually aim the ball properly. Um, yeah. But I have a cottage. I mean, mostly, so my, and my holiday is just to go to my cottage and do absolutely nothing. Yeah. I love to just sit there. And my sister's cottage is just 14 cottages away. My brother's a mile away. So. And the in-laws all have to deal with the fact that we're all together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, nice. Well, like, kind of related to things that one might do for hobbies, we were thinking about, are you any into like sci-fi movies? or? No, I hate sci-fi. You... Nice. Um, I, I don't know why, it's just bothers me. Like, Doug will tell you, my husband, the, the traveling the faster than the speed of light just really bugs me. I mean, that's just not possible. I don't, sorry. Um, you know, and there was one, I think the movie was called Spies Like Us. I walked out of it because there was light coming off a grating going just completely i forget why i knew it was just completely the wrong way because i wouldn't have known the groove spacing or anything but it did i just went no no light would not do that and so then i just i just had a walk out um so no i, I really don't like sci-fi and i always have to correct people when they think that my laser is like a lightsaber i'm mean, no a lightsaber is oh. stupid that's just light that's just you know they wanted a high-tech version of a sword but 
point that lasers are so good is that it goes in one pinpoint, not that it goes in all directions. It's just a light bulb, but anyway. <laughs> so is there, at any point, did you see something where you thought, hmm, the science in this is really like well depicted, and like, I can relate to that, or have you always been disappointed in what you see? No, I just don't even go, <laughs> you know? Because I also think, so. I, I always find it funny, because I think it's like um, love stories for men, science fiction. You know, um, because there is always that element, and yet they just sci-fi it up, and then it's like it's okay for men to watch this or something. But usually, the, the storylines are also so sad that it's like, oh my gosh, you know. That's a good point. I don't think I've ever said it this way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, now, my one uh, female faculty friend, she saw. Now, I never remember the name, uh, but you know, he went to Mars. Maybe it was just called Mars. I don't know. And he, he had to live all by himself. Oh, the Martian. Uh, Martian. The Martian. Oh. You know, and I don't think there was anything wrong with the science on that one, and so I did watch it, you know, but then it's sort of a, well, just a lonely thing. I don't know. <laughs> I'm an old movie buff, really. I have to say I, I prefer, we have this thing, Turner Classic Movies at Home, and it's just, I love movies from the 30s and 40s. Okay. And so I prefer them. So definitely less sci-fi in those ones. Yeah, less. <laughs> no, I think they, I don't watch the sci-fi ones. They had really goony ones then, but no, yeah. I just like the glamour age of the 30s and 40s. <laughs> Speaking about the the, 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 the laser saber that you mentioned before, I, like I've had a million friends asking this to me, like how would you make a laser, a laser saber, would that be possible and stuff? And trying to find, like they would push me to try and find ways to make that believable. And I, I relate to the thing that you said, that it's just like, just, just, just yeah, just give up on it because it's sci-fi, you know, it's like for you to... Well, and, and the idea is if you really had a powerful laser, like now, right, these kilowatts coming out of uh, the, when I've gone to visit and seen the people, I think it was at Slack that they had this kilowatt fiber laser that was also then short pulse one. I went, gee, you must have to have an awful lot of interlocks because you would not want to put your finger through that because it would be <laughs> gone, right? I mean, it would just be well, that's scary, right? So it's not that lasers themselves can't be scary, although obviously this thing you can't just slap on your back <laughs> and get going. Um, but yeah, so but it's the idea that you would have to point it and, and you could do a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, since we brought up lasers, then um, what do you think was... Which is my favorite subject. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> what, what do you think was the thing that brought you closer to lasers? Like, do you think, like, was there something else you, at the early stage of your career, you kind of felt interested in? What was that got you closer to lasers, that got you know, your attention? It was just really uh, looking for a place to go for undergrad and not knowing what to do between physics and engineering. Um, and McMaster had an engineering physics program, so that made sense for me. And then one fourth of it was lasers and electro-optics. And I just saw that as a high school student. This is in the 70s, so it really was much more sci-fi that you'd see a laser. That you, <laughs> now you can get them in a dollar store, but there you just never saw them. And so I just had this gut reaction, oh, that sounds too cool. And so it just stayed with me. I mean, I got, I didn't really get to play with lasers so much. People wore lasers and they showed me the lasers they had in the group, but I was building them. Supposed to diode for a detector never worked. Um, but yeah, so then I and then uh, when I went to Rochester because I asked the guys in that group where I should go, uh, and I, a fellow Canadian saw me and I had my iron ring on, which means I graduated from Canadian Engineering School. Oh, and uh, this is why I wear mostly just so other Canadian engineers see it. And um, so he, you know, and he asked. I said oh, I want to do lasers, and he just took me over and showed me Gerard's, and they had the beautiful red and green dye laser, which just looked too cool so yeah just, just a good like, reaction about you it's good. nothing to do with science it's just yeah, a yeah, yeah. reaction like, yeah generally instantaneous reaction like, what has been like, yeah is there something specific about optics 
I mean, just, yeah, studying it and over time just go to appreciate it, I guess. It, there wasn't like a moment where I was like, oh, yes, also, I'm going to be doing this for the rest yeah, of my life. When someone took me to the lab, like, there was something you can actually see. Kind yeah. Of, I mean, like, even if it's not the laser radiation itself, but you see something's happening. Whereas, like, when I was an undergrad, I couldn't imagine what a theoretical physicist would do. Like, does he sit down all day with a piece <laughs> of paper and a pencil and just... Thanks. Like right. I just couldn't imagine. Right. One like one seems like playing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think I I think it was a lot for me as well. Like I remember like taking for my undergrad maybe last year of undergrad we took part to like for a couple of weeks to a research lab, and out of like mistakes we we generated super continuum in me there, and I <laughs> yeah. saw and that, that is, for the first time. Yeah, I want to have that for an undergrad GFIS lab because we're fighting at oh, we're fighting is the wrong word but at Waterloo <laughs> we have the Premier Institute of Theoretical Physics and so we have this. We also think of quantum computing, and both have really uh, brought up um, the number of people who come to grad school. But uh, we've always had quite a few uh, undergrads, but probably even more now. And they really want to do theoretical physics because the Perimeter Institute has their Saturday schools, and mm-hmm. I don't know, it's a lot of outreach. And, and then we added a new course in first year that's all about teaching general relativity, and uh, but without all the math. Just you know, yes, when you get to fourth year, you will be able to really understand mm-hmm. this. But here's all the physics you're going to learn because people get so fed up. They go to Perimeter Institute, they see these talks, and then they come and it's the ramp down, the blo- you know, block down the ramp again. Um, and I went, no, I think we need to get our uh, lab course just for our honors physics students instead of our math physics students, and just and I call them my G quiz labs. So continuum generation is one of the ones, and just to play with it, and just yeah. for them to play with it, they're not going to be able to figure it out in a three-hour lab. It took people working around the world ten years to yeah, figure yeah. out why continuum generation happened. And um, yeah, just see it and think, wow, that was cool. That was yeah, like exactly. magic, you know? And yeah. uh, that's what scientists do. We explain the magic. And actually, I was in the lab with two people that then moved to theory. And yeah, uh, in the three of us, I was the only one yeah. reacting with a lot of excitement. Like, oh my God, I see colors in air. Yeah. What happened? And they were like, okay. And I ended <laughs> they up. They really didn't get it. I, oh, I can't imagine. I can't yeah, me neither. <laughs> Shall we move it to like more PhD related thing? Yeah, so you were mentioning the outreach project of the Perimeter Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think, or how important do you think is the role of like doing outreach work during your PhD or in general during your... Well, I think in general it's very important. Um, you know, it's a high-tech uh, age now, even though we're losing jobs right now, but that's beside the point. Um, and it's, it's amazing that uh, I know Waterloo has more people taking the final year of physics in high school than most places in Canada. And it is probably because we have so much outreach from perimeter right there in town and it's just known and it's you know and so physics became cool in waterloo so it shows you that if you want yeah which is an unusual thing right um now the big bang theory in also helped okay so there's the big bang theory that helped a lot but uh no i think the outreach at perimeter has just done an amazing job they also have done an amazing job bringing teachers from across the country to them for the summer so that's probably also just helping right across um and how do you evaluate the role for you personally, or like for, for the physicist himself who does the research, uh, who does the outreach? Then? Well, again, not everybody can do everything well. So I don't know that every physicist is meant to do outreach, right? Mm-hmm. But I think those that are should be out there doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think, you know, my daughter's an astro, so I'm more aware of it than before. But obviously, astro does a much better job than most physicists. Now, is that because most people look up at the stars and just think how cool is this and so they're more interested in that, whereas most people don't look at their cell phones and go, gee, I wonder really how this works. Somehow it's not the same wonder about Mm -hmm. it, right? Um, 
Uh, but on the, so that's one half. I think they have a more ready audience than the rest of physicists do. But they also get NASA's help. That NASA not only has all the beautiful pictures for them, this is my, you know the latest thing from whatever latest, but it, uh, and the historical ones. They even come with the talking points though. Mm -hmm. So it's also pretty easy for you to figure out how to put a talk together. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be wonderful if organizations would help the you know I think the condensed matter physicists have the hardest one. You know it's just like they have trouble explaining it to even other physicists. Um, and but all of us need that kind of help, I think. And, and certainly, uh, I had to. That's part of uh, the will that you must give a talk. And certainly, they make it clear that they want a public talk when you give your Nobel talk, uh, and it's out on YouTube forever. So you're going to put some effort into that particular public talk. Uh, but and the university, I asked for the help, and they gave it to me. And uh, the communications team really worked. And not only did they make much nicer slides for me than I could make, but you know, in discussing with these people who study communications and only communications and not physics at all, um, they had trouble making the slides the way I wanted them to be. And I realized, oh, I'm not really explaining this, am I? Mm -hmm. Because you wouldn't have made this mistake had I explained it better. And so that also really helped uh, the talk because it was that conversation with the person that's right out of your field um, helping you figure out, okay, what's, what's making sense, what's not making sense to somebody outside your field. And, and you really need that practice. Mm -hmm. So so there's a few things that go on. So I would like to see most universities have a communications team work with every department, mm -hmm. right? They should be hiring people to say, you know, let's talk each of your areas mm -hmm. to make sure that not one of the areas, so in physics, if you have optics, have an optics thing and, and see who's best out of optics to give the public talks. Who's best in your condensed matter, who's best in your astro, who's best in your, but the, I will tell you, Astro, my daughter, in her third year uh, grad school, already gave her first public talk, right? And yes, this is how many public talks Astro give. And um, they work right from first year. She worked mostly at the refreshment stand afterwards, mm -hmm. right? Where they sell refreshments after it. And then while they're going on tours, they take turns going on tours of, you know, the telescope, or I don't know if they've ever tours on. Um, I didn't do the tours when I went to see her talk. I just wanted to see her talk. Uh, so, yes, I was just surprised that Astro could do so much and that they expected their students to get ready to do public talks. And so they are trained in that. And we as uh, physics grad students are not trained in that. Oh, yeah, that's a, a huge luck, I think. Like, and one comment that I, I often receive about outreach, which, by the way, I, I, I'm in love with, um, is like that sometimes like people see two types of outreach, as in outreach for like basic science that we want to bring out of academia for everybody to understand and outreach more close to your own research. Do you think one is more important than the other? What's your opinion on both of them? Because like in my opinion, it's, it's fundamental to do outreach about fundamentals in science so that people can understand how science works because now it's like on a, in our everyday life. So it, it's just fact that everybody understands how a phone works, for example. But then how useful can it be for me to explain in a very easy level my very specific research to the general public? I don't know that it's important that in every specific area of research gets explained to the public. I think it's, I think really what we want is the public to have an appreciation for science. So we are starting this new network for trust in science and technology at Waterloo. And um, I think because we want politicians to be guided by scientific principles and so we they're only going to do it if the people insist on it. So we have to get the people insisting on it. So they have to understand. 
um, the importance of it. So I think it's also how why science should be trusted as well, you know, and the scientific process. So this we have to get out to the general public so that they can appreciate it. There should not have been the uh, politicization, you know, yeah. of, of the vaccine. This was just beyond, yeah. you know, ridiculousness. Um, that nobody should be picking their health care based on the way they vote. Um, and and somehow that loss and trust in the scientific method was, has to be a thought. Um, but I think, you know, it bugs me to think that most people might walk away and only think, you know, if you think physics, it must be astro. I mean, I think we have to broadly explain that there's, you know, all these areas. And I think, you know, the one that I always bring up is Korea and how their economy changed because of the effort they put into science. The fact that they had nothing at the end of their uh, Korean War and they didn't have resources to rely on, so they had to do something. So they put their eggs in the science basket, you know, and now we're all on Samsung phones and LG appliances and Hyundai cars and what an amazing difference in their economy. And I think our general public needs to understand that. And so again, they, you know, if you use the cell phone as just um, an example of what needs to be explained, how much semiconductor is in there and how much optics mm -hmm. is in there, um, you know, you get both. And um, just to understand that, yes, we have to understand this, people have to make them, and our country should be making them, not just these certain countries making them or something like it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so this, these things need to be understood. So we mentioned one sort of skill, like outreach, that a young researcher probably needs to develop. But um, you were president of the Optica OSA uh, Society, and what role do you think these societies play in like sort of the development of young researchers? And do you think that early on in your career that really helped you sort of develop the career that you then had? Well, uh, I would say in my day, and I think still probably true, it's going to the conferences that helps a lot. And so we need these organizations to run the conferences. Um, I think I personally would rely on these organizations to put on good conferences. Both publications and conferences are now being uh, driven just from a money point of view, and there's many for the money um, ones, and you want to be careful probably of those. Um, so I think somehow we, we count on the organizations because we know that they, it's, it's the scientists themselves that are on the boards and are the members and, and are driving it for our sakes, um, that we can trust those. Uh, and then on top of that, it is just the networking. I think it doesn't matter what uh, career you go into, you want to be networked. And so again, these organizations help us be networked. And I think it has helped my career a lot. Uh, that I did get uh, plugged into being a volunteer at these organizations because that's when you really get to meet people um, in your field broadly, but at least outside your own very specific field. And that can help in a number of ways. And actually, like thinking about how to develop your early stage career, given that we were all PhD students, different years, but like that's the environment that we live every day. What would you, like, how do you remember your, say, rough times during your PhD period? What would you do? To go through your rough times, and what would you suggest to a PhD student starting now? Well, I still went for walks when I felt like kicking the laser. <laughs> I never kicked the laser. Um, but I would, I would say. Okay. Big note. <laughs> um, <laughs> that uh, you mostly have to rely on your friends. Uh, and I, I had a great group, and uh, I think we all helped each other. I think we did know when each other was struggling, and uh, um, I think, yeah. 
we just helped each other. So, uh, and I had people, you know, uh, I had people tell me, be careful, you know, this, this is happening, don't, don't let this happen, do this. I also, um, I said halfway through my PhD when I heard about the job with Paul Corkum in Canada, and I knew I wanted to go home to Canada. Uh, I told the guys, you know, okay, Paul Corkum doesn't know me yet, and I hadn't done CPA yet, but I'm going to be Paul's second postdoc. And the guys in the group, every time we would go to an ultrafast or Clio conference, they go, Paul's over there, get in his face. Paul's over there, get in his face, right? <laughs> I mean, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I did count on the guys in the group to help me out. That's, that's very nice. And are those like the same sort of friends that are still like driving you today to keep doing what you're doing or is there something else? I also have a spouse you? now that's very good. I have the most uh, supportive spouse. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm probably not as good with my friends now as once I had the career and the kids and the husband. It was like there was only so much I could handle. Um, but yes, I, I would say that um, yes, even as a, a faculty member struggling, I do have friends on the faculty who keep me going. Absolutely. And actually mentioning friends, like, do you feel like the relationship between you and your friends has been influenced by before or after the Nobel Prize? No. Oh, that's good. <laughs> like, because, you know, like sometimes I understand that like the Nobel Prize winners are like the VIP of science, which makes for a niche kind of public compared to like, I don't know, a very pop VIP, for example, right? Mm -hmm. and. When, whenever we, a person think about very famous people, it's always like you feel like putting their in their shoes. Their their personal life must change. In fact, oh, my personal life changed, but I wouldn't say my relationship with my friends has changed. Um, one of the funny ones was uh, so uh, just I think it must have been the summer before I won. Uh, so I have this good friend uh, Phil Buckstrom and his wife, and, and they used to be at Michigan. And, and when they were at Michigan, they got to be members of our Stratford Festival, the Shakespearean Festival in Stratford. Uh, which is very near Waterloo, where I live. And so even though they're now at Stanford, they come up for a week every year, and now their daughter lives in Toronto anyway. So, um, and then one year they said, we're going to have Dan and B. Kleppner with us, you know, so how about, we'll just come for dinner, but usually they, they would stay, and I said, well, you know, if they don't mind staying in the basement, we have the extra room. And so, and they filled them first, no, we'll stay in your basement, you put them in your guest room, and I said, okay. And so I remember telling my sister, I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have this very famous physicist with me. I'm going to be so nervous. How do I, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to make them dinner and da, da, da. And, and, my, and my sister said, well, I thought you said Phil was famous. I said, yeah, but I've known him forever, so that doesn't matter. <laughs> and then, um, so anyway, so that's like, so and then they got told, uh, Roberta said, I've already told B about your upside down cake, so I hope that's what you're going to make for our dinner, because I've already said it's so good. So fine, I make this upside down cake. So now I win the Nobel Prize, and um, Dan's student was Bill Phillips, who's won the Nobel Prize. So he calls me up, and we have this conversation. He says, uh, or I can't remember if it was by email or phone even, isn't that weird? Um, maybe he wrote just long emails to me. Uh, and he said about how I'd probably be the one sitting beside the king, and you know, I don't know what we just talked about. He said, you know, I heard from Dan that you have this great upside-down <laughs> recipe. And I remember talking to the queen about my brownie recipe, so maybe you could talk about that. And so that I get uh, interviewed by the Globe and Mail, and I said, you know, it is just so weird, is that I could not believe these famous physicists were discussing my upside-down recipe. <laughs> I said, but now I realize that other people are going to now think I'm a famous physicist, and we're all going full circle here. <laughs> So, so I mean, this is what's so, and, 
and Dan and me are both such lovely, lovely people. So this is the problem is you put these famous people like here and they're just people, you know, it's so yeah. weird. Well, on the lot of famous people, it was the, the, the idea of... Yeah, are you having like a club of like <laughs> Nobel Prize winners or is there a WhatsApp group for all of them? <laughs> yeah, well, there is a club in a way because um, there's the Lindau meeting. And the Lindau meeting is for the uh, phys, or for the Nobel laureates to get together to meet the students that get to come from around the uh, world, and so um, and I'll be going in a few weeks to the Hope meeting, which is the same thing in Japan. Uh, so and there's also one in China, which I did online because it was during COVID. Um, so I think you know certainly at the Lindau meeting, which I have been to in person now twice. Uh, the students stay separate from the professors. The professors can stay in this really nice hotel. Uh, or, or the you know, laureates, I should say. And so then there are meals that are just for the laureates. Like we have most of, most of the time we're with the students as well, but there's a few nights where it's just the laureates. And so it's our chance to uh, get to know each other. And it is nice because of course it is a different type of life. And so it is mm -hmm. nice to discuss how you handle the travel. How do you handle, you know, we have to yeah. never say no. Um, you know, these kinds of things that we're all of a sudden faced with when we weren't, you know, faced with it until it happens. And so it's good to have that time to find out from the people who've been dealing with it longer than you. Oh yeah, that's, that's a nice point. And do you think it would be, it can also be a nice occasion to generate new science? You know, it's like mixing up together people, the best people from different environments. Uh, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I've, it hasn't happened for me, but I'm sure they have some of those discussions. But it, it's mostly more social when, mm -hmm. when we're meeting there. Now we do get to hear each other's talks and stuff. Um, and so things can uh, be triggered by it, I'm sure. But I think I have a silly question related to the novel, and then I'm willing to just drop the topic. But <laughs> do you? Uh, of course, you remember. But what were you doing when you received the news the first time? And whom sleeping. did you sleeping? Wow, it's five in the morning there, right? So you're not thinking in here in Europe. It's not in the morning, but it's always eleven o'clock Swedish okay. time. Oh, okay. Right. So it, that's five a.m. our time. And I was sleeping. And did the call awake you? Or did yes. you? Oh. <laughs> and whom, whom did you tell first? Oh, so this is, this is my funny story. Um, so it's five in the morning. Well, actually, they hung up on me. So then I had to call them. And then, so it's about 5.15. And I have to get ready for a 6 a.m. Um, press conference at that point, right? So I got my husband up. I said, you got to make coffee. Uh, you know, I got showered and got breakfast in me. So I could, and I said, I think this is going to be a pretty busy day. But at 5.30, I texted four people. Now, I don't even, I never use a phone. Um, and so I had to text them separately. I didn't even know how to. Now I know how to group them. But I, at the time, I didn't. And I wasn't going to think about it at 5.30 in the morning. So I texted uh, my brother, my sister, my, my son, and my daughter. I don't know in which order. I'm just saying that now. But anyway, and just wrote, I won the Nobel Prize. Right? So my, I knew that only my brother would be up because he gets up at 5 in the morning. But my, uh, and my sister and her husband actually were in uh, Prague. They told me that they saw it run across. They were having dinner and they ran across the thing. She was saying Canadian woman's won the Nobel Prize, and that's how they found it. Anyway, because they didn't have their phone on when they were in Prague. Um, but my sister, or my sister, my daughter wakes up and she sees my, you know, I won the Nobel Prize. And she goes, Oh no, mom's phone's been hacked. <laughs> <laughs> that her girlfriend. If somehow gets a hold of her, I don't know about texting, Facebook, I don't know how they talk to each other, but then said, 
that's great news about your mother. And she actually, and, and this girlfriend put this all out on Twitter, the whole conversation. Um, she got back to her friend said, no, I think my mom's phone's been hacked. <laughs> and the girlfriend had to say, it's on the news, Hannah. So then Hannah Googled me and found out that indeed I had won the Nobel Prize. And then she phoned me at 7.30 and she's like in tears. And she goes, mom, you won the Nobel Prize. I think I told you that. <laughs> Thanks for wow. believing in me. Uh, yeah. So her reaction was, was the best. How old was she at the time? She was already in grad school in astrophysics. <laughs> she was in first year grad school. Amazing. <laughs> and so unfortunately, if she hadn't, so then she wrote on her Facebook page, my mom won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> then people wouldn't know she was my daughter. And so I'm quite often at these, like, um, when I meet grad students or I meet women in physics or whatever, I start, people ask me mentoring questions and I'll bring up my daughter invariably. Now, luckily, I've somewhat learned because one of the first times that I met Harvard, and I, I don't even know what story about my daughter I'm telling. And one guy in the court puts up saying, because I was at McGill with your daughter. Oh, shoot, you know. <laughs> I should be more careful. <laughs> Do I say anything embarrassing about it? <laughs> <laughs> Hannah knows most of the stories I now tell everybody. Because then I was at MIT, and it was the women in. And, you know, three quarters of them were in Astro. I have no idea what has made Astro so feminine friendly, but for heaven friggin' sakes, most Astro departments are women. Anyway, so they were all women. And so I said, okay, before I say anything, how many of you know my daughter? Does anybody here know my daughter? And nobody said. So then I start telling a story about my daughter. And so the woman goes, oh, is your daughter Hannah? I went, see, you do Because <laughs> <laughs> Astro's a pretty tight community. I don't know. I thought, oh my gosh, what embarrassing thing have I now said about her? Anyway, so. thanks for sharing this story. <laughs> so I'm assuming you do interviews quite often, mm -hmm. and you probably have to prepare for them sometimes. Maybe no. Well, I did at the beginning, but not anymore. So was there a question that you always sort of prepared for, or that you dreaded, but it just never came up, and you just like dodged a bullet here? No. No. You can't. Uh, you can't be interviewed as much as me that uh, and not. I mean, I suppose. Yeah, no, I don't think I ever worried about a question coming up. I think there has been the odd question out of left field. Um, the tough one, and I would say the toughest media interview I did was the one in Korea. There were 11 media people at the table, because um, science is really big in Asia, right? Unlike Western world. And, uh, and just by uh, diplomacy or what have you, because I think most of them could speak English, but maybe not all of them, I don't know. But the rule was... Um, they had to ask in Korean. It had to be translated for me. I answered in English. It had to be translated back into Korean. So it was this much slower kind of thing, right? And we got through all 11 of them, I think there were. And then at the end, uh, it was the head of the National Academy wanted to know um, what they had to do to get a Nobel Prize in science. And, you know, that's a tough one. But it wasn't the media person, it was the head of their National Academy asking, right? So that, and, and I just talked, I think I probably had already said that Korea is my favorite uh, country for how they've handled science and used science to improve the economy. And I said, don't you think it's more important that it's improved your economy so much? And he goes, we still want to win a Nobel Prize. Wow. <laughs> you know, so. I mean, how do you get out of a conversation like that? You know, I don't know, I would find that very embarrassing in a way, like, well, no, I know, and I, you know, the problem is, of course, there's only 1,500 people get asked who it should be, right? So until they get a whole lot of Koreans being asked, they, people aren't maybe thinking 
you know, it's, 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 it's a tough one, right? Because yeah. we all can, uh, I think our gut reaction is to go with people we know when we're, when we're going to propose somebody. And um, so, I mean, and it's, it was possibly right of him to put it out there to say, you know, we are doing good science now. We have done 40 years of really bringing our science up to the level of everybody else in the world. And, you know. No, no, but like, you know, the, the feeling of once you put it on the side of, yeah, but it's more important that your science is doing something important for your community. Then, but it, but the whole point is that people want to meet me because I want a Nobel Prize, and that's his point. It says that our fundamental science is doing really good, not just our you know applied science, but just science is doing mm -hmm. you know that we are top. This is the problem: is that the Nobel Prize is considered the top, and so everybody wants to have that stamp of approval. Everybody wants to say, yes, you're right, right. I mean, certainly. You know, when I got asked a lot about, you know, did I, you know, realize that I was just the third woman? I said, no, it didn't ever occur to me. I hadn't noticed that women hadn't won. I said, but I will tell you as a Canadian, because there's so few Canadians that win, when a Canadian wins, I stand up and notice. So I said, probably had a woman won that wasn't me, I would have stood up and noticed. But I don't, I don't notice it when Canadians don't win. You know what I'm saying? It's not yeah. like every time a Canadian doesn't win, I'm not saying, oh, Canada didn't win again. But you, you notice when it does, when they do. Um, and so this is, you know, Korea deserves their chance to have that time in the limelight too, you know? Because Japan has been getting them for a while. Maybe and this is what they're thinking. It's sort of like, mm. you know, yes, Japan was maybe into it earlier than we are, but aren't we catching up? And is there any sort of topics or questions that always annoy you? Like the things that you don't like to chat about. I don't like to talk about being a woman in science. I agree. To be <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's not talk about that then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I asked, but what's what's driving you now? Like, because for every physicist, I would say winning the Nobel Prize is like the end goal. Like, I mean, a dream we all have or whatever, mm -hmm. but then you did it. So what now? What, what's your Yeah, and it actually was not my dream. So it's funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can be a dream. It can be a dream. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that really um, my whole career goal was to get a PhD. Yeah. Right. You don't think about winning a Nobel Prize for your PhD like I did. But there you go. Um, <laughs> And I really, it's not like I was thinking to myself, oh, I really want to be a scientist. It wasn't that at all. Uh, I heard about getting a PhD, I think when I was still in elementary school. Because somebody's, you know, older sibling was getting one and I asked what it was. And, uh, and you know, and it, they probably didn't say the ultimate because that doesn't sound like something a kid would say, but whatever. You know, it was like the top in going to school. And somehow I just knew I belonged in school. And so my career goal was to get a PhD all the way through until I was halfway through my PhD until I went, oh, shoot, I guess I need something more. Uh, I can't stay here forever. Uh, but I also would have stayed for my postdoc forever, too, if that could have been possible. I just thought that was even better. Once I got there, I went, this is even better because you do nothing but science. Um, yeah. I wish I could have stayed just being a postdoc forever. I think it's, it is the ideal job. Because um, I wouldn't say I'm ambitious in that way. Right. I just want to have fun just doing my own little thing. I don't. Yeah. I mean, this is it. I didn't, I don't think I wanted to be a famous person. I think I just wanted to have fun in the lab by myself sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, probably because I'm an introvert. So, yeah. Uh, is there something you really want to do now? Yes. Or so the only thing that I'm really pushing now, you know, I mean, I'm still 
trying to help my students who are struggling in the lab because I'm never there to help them. Um, and that's sad. Uh, I have started, or <laughs> I'm sort of the face of this new thing called Trust. And it's called Trust. And then we came up with that acronym. Um, trust in research undertaken in science and technology. Um, and because I, I just thought, especially during COVID, maybe not quite, but even way early on, somebody asked, you know, um, in my hometown, you know, let's do something. And they thought maybe it should be something for women in STEM. I went, no. And then, but I came and I said, you know, if you do something like helping with science literacy, I think that's so important. And it was probably at the time thinking more about the environment and people against the, you know, climate change and stuff. But then, you know, COVID hit. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, what is going on in this world that, that there's a whole group of people not having a vaccine because their political leaders are telling them not to get a vaccine. It's just, this has gone crazy. Um, so that's that's what I got worried about. And so I, I do, <clears throat> once you win the Nobel Prize, I think you are aware that you can lend your voice to something. And so you, you start thinking about it. So that's what I'd like my, to lend my voice to. Mm-hmm. And luckily, um, it's the Dean of Engineering that's helping me at Waterloo. Which I think she caught on quickly that I'm the big picture person, but not the details person. So she's already found a co-director to be the details person, and I'll just be the big picture person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all I have to do. <laughs> yeah, I think we can close with the silly one. That, that we have a friend in the chapter that pushed this question a lot, and it's which is your favorite wavelength, if you have one. That is. It's got to be 1064. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this special interview. We hope you've enjoyed it. Once again, a huge thank you to the King's College London SPI student chapter, including Vittorio, Dries and Anne, and of course, Professor Strickland. <laughs>